reflecting on the Paticca Samuppada, we recognize that the results of a physical birth are that there's consciousness in this word consciousness is always a word used for um, that which uh, arises as subject and object. In other words, that the, the, the moment of consciousness is always when the subject and the object uh, contact, when the con- object contacts the subject and consciousness arises. So consciousness is a word that needs to be particularly aligned with that relationship, subject to object. It's not like a, we don't mean it, it's kind of like a, a universal consciousness, as a kind of soul, or some kind of soul-like force. But think of vijnana as, uh, as the word vijnana, Pali word, as that to be conscious there has to, there has to be some kind of separation, doesn't there? There has to be birth, in other words, to be conscious. Which is the the uh, subject now, now say being being in a separate form like this, we're in, in the seemingly separateness of having our own eyes and ears and and uh, tongue and nose and all this, and we we're conscious through these organs. Then awareness isn't does doesn't imply an object. Uh, so much as as ability for the mind to be to be to just an alertness, awakenness. Um, and so one can 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 contemplate consciousness, sensory consciousness, just like looking at those candle or the, the shrine. You realize that there's there's consciousness. Now that's what consciousness is, is the eye contacting the flame. And there's eye consciousness of the flame. Ability to, to see and, and before you name it as anything or perceive it as anything, there's consciousness. Then as a, then as a consciousness, uh, vijnana, bhajaya, namarupa, then it becomes uh, Namarupa is uh, all corporality mentality. So it becomes more designated into, in from consciousness towards, perse- uh, towards rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara. Perception in, in different, different uh, levels of, of uh, mental formation. Uh, and then that is uh, that the ability of the say the, the, the active form of the body and the and the mind or the, the physicality the corporeality mentality start operating which is then the the eyes ears nose tongue body the salayatana contact with the objects pasa And Vedana. So, in this in this uh, term, Vijnana, it it always implies that the that this that 
out of ignorance, out of avicca, then then uh, then that conditions the, the sankharas or the tendency, the inclination, intention to make something more uh, out of out of ignorance of of, of uh, not seeing things clearly, not knowing the truth. One tends to uh, whatever one is uh, say doing or feeling or experiencing is is not exactly what it is anymore. It's something else. It's a sankara, something added, something pushed onto it, something distorted in the, in the in the angle toward it, and that affects <coughs> the consciousness, which is also implied in namarupa and salayatana pasa. That whole that whole conscious experience of consciousness through ignorance. So there's, say, consciousness through avicca. And that's what, when, when, we, when we don't understand the Four Noble Truths in their three aspects and twelve stages, or we don't, we have not in, had insight into all then then this paticca samupada operates. There's avicca bhajaya sankara sankara bhajaya vinyana vinyana bhajaya namarupang. And it goes on like that. And, it, and it's never questioned, never, never seen, never uh, investigated. One can live one's whole life with avicca influencing consciousness. And so when it gets to Vedana, the feeling, the feeling, the attractive, repulsive, or the, the attractive, unattractive, neutral <coughs> experience of the sense, sense world, then it becomes, then there's dhanha, because vedana conditions, uh, vedana bhajaya dhanha, or desire, desire for, for the object if it's attractive, uh, desire to become something, or power done, or desire to get rid of something, and that desire then dana bhajaya upadana. Now upadana is the clinging, grasping tendency. It is most important to contemplate this grasping tendency. For out of ignorance, we grasp at things. We're always grasping desire. And desire is compared to fire. It's like grasping fire, something that burns, isn't it? Only you don't realize it burns. You're so used to being burned by your desires. You, you, you wonder why you suffer. You say, it's because you're grasping fire. Then you, then you say, well, I won't grasp fire anymore. It hurts too much. But you have to investigate. You have to really see that, know that. Because desire is it can seem like something very very lovely to grasp, isn't it? it can, desires aren't uh, can can be much more kind of subtle than just fire. The desires can be, you know, very real to us and very much me and mine. And so when desires grasp, then they're then there's uh, becoming, you become, there's the becoming of that desire and what you're grasping. 
So we're becoming things all the time through avicca, uh, sankara, dana, upadana, power. We're always, we're always becoming whatever we're grasping. If you really observe, what is the self? It's, a, it's always becoming something. It's not, you have a perception maybe of, a, uh, of yourself as being a kind of permanent person or character. Don't we? We all have a, an assumption we make, which is a which is an assumption is is a percept that, that somehow I'm always been uh, ever since I've been ordained I've been tomato because before that was Robert Jackson and I've been this kind of I've been this person for all my life I have memories and I have a birth certificate can prove that I was born and that I was christened and that I'm this person from this family and that <coughs> gives a sense of continuity to the whole process of uh, say from birth to the present moment and somehow I have been the same person that whole time but when you really examine consciousness and investigate what do you find? You find that you're, you're ju there's just a series of becoming and, and then jati, birth, into, into that, becoming and, and being reborn as a happy person, as a jealous person, as a frightened person, as a fulfilled person, as an unfulfilled person, as, as a restless, uh, discontented person, as a greedy person, as a grudge-bearing person, uh, and, uh, and it changes all the time. Where, when can I find any point in my life that was ever the same? That I was ever the same person? I can assume that I was always the same person while all that was going on, but actually if you observe that when, there's, when consciousness is being affected, conditioned by avicca, then, then this, uh, one is always becoming something. There's always this becoming going on. Restless movement of desire. Now desire, the very nature of desire is, is it's always going towards something. Desire never is contented with itself. It's impossible for a desire to be contented with itself and to stop. It's always, it goes always toward anything. If you are identified with desire, and you, you're, you're attached to desire as yourself, and you're still operating from avicca, of course, you have to be to see desire as yourself, then you're always, you're always going towards something else. Just notice here on this retreat of how the suffering here comes from always wanting to get something or get on to the next thing, that getting caught in that movement of desire, waiting for something waiting for the, for the bell to ring, or, or trying to get some state. Maybe you had a previous hour, you had a very nice, uh, blissful meditation. You want to have that again. So you could, and what did I do? Well, I, I did, I, I did down upon a sati for 10 minutes, kept my eyes open, squeezed my anus. <laughs> <laughs> you do all that and nothing happens. So, 
wanting, because you're attached to, to, a, to a memory, don't you? Say a, say a pleasant experience, you have a memory. Say, last night I had a wonderful meditation. I was just absolutely blissed out. It was so wonderful. And that, that, that kind of thinking, then the attachment to that memory of the sanya, the memory, that's what I want again. And so when you sit down, you're aiming at trying to <coughs> have happiness or have bliss. So there's dana upadana bhava, isn't it? And you're trying to, to get something, uh, some achieve something that you remember as being very pleasant, some desirable experience that you would like to have again. So then you're always being frustrated. Sometimes you might get it, sometimes you don't. But you, you can't, you know, you, but it, the idea of, of getting it and keeping it can, can be uh, a strong motivation to do it to sit and, and try to to, uh, to have those blissful experiences. But with reflection, you're noticing how the whole process, you're not, you're not after bliss or tranquility, happiness anymore. Let go of all that, that inclination of wanting or doing anything in order to become happy or to be peaceful, trying to get peacefulness or, or tranquility. Just learn to, to, uh, to really notice that intent, what, what, your, what your ditta is like when you're, when you're sitting here. Is there, is there uh, you know, do you really want to, to, be, to find some kind of tranquility this hour? Try to have a, a peaceful hour. What does it feel like to want peace or want to, to get something? What is desire really like? Know it, know it, and, and understand desire, dhamma, uh, so that you're, it doesn't delude you. You can see it, you can, and you know you're no longer attached to it. When it arises, you you're aware of it as what for what it is. When you're attached to desire, then you you practice letting go of it. It's like noticing that attachment to desire and reflecting on attachment. What is attachment? What is it? What is it like being attached to a desire? Understand attachment and becoming. When you're attached to something, you become that way. Whatever you, whatever you desire, you become like that. But becoming. And then power conditions starting or the rebirth. So you're being reborn again into something which will change. I mean, you, even in, if you have a good desire, you want to be happy, you grasp happiness, you become happy, you're reborn as a happy person, and then happiness takes you to despair because happiness is not permanent. So the happiness and then Sokapariteva tukatomanasa upayasa. And so then you have then avicca bhajaya sankara again. You try to you try to you start over again with uh, trying to to grasp something else. It's a uh, uh, so that this these 
this physical psycho uh, this, this formation uh, that has been born with its eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, consciousness and feeling in the sensory world uh, where the, there's uh, sense objects, where there's things to see and sounds to listen to and so forth. If it's always, if one is, is always uh, coming from avicca, then it, it, the end of it always is death and despair. It's always Despair, see, regard despair as a kind of mental death. And the word death is a physical death. This is how I like to use the term. When I talk about death, I mean a physical death, like a body dies. But despair, to me, is death. It's a, it's a kind of mental death, where you sense of, I mean, it's, and it's what happens when you're attached to, to, uh, to desire while the body is alive. You're always going to end up with despair, anguish, sorrow and grief. And so because of that, you always have to keep getting away from it because uh, you, what makes you happy today doesn't make you happy all the time. And you get bored, and you feel disappointment, despair. So you have to look for something else. You have to keep being reborn again mentally, looking for different possibilities for absorption. Just uh, going from this to that, seeking the next interesting thing to do. Uh, doing just, just giving yourself totally to some some new thing, some new object to become, or. Some people can, can even live in total misery if they're making lots of money. The idea that, that somehow being rich and making lots of money can, be, uh, can, can motivate people. And even though they're utterly miserable, they still are willing to bear with the misery. To be attached to the perception of being somebody who makes lots of money. That, that perception of oneself is somehow an important person in the world. I want to find it, you know, I'm miserable. I don't like to live that way. But I do have the consolation of being considered a successful man. I think that's the problem.
rather shocked that that such a shallow kind of goal in life you know a man was when uh, that was so important to him and, and that 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 was what his, his that's all he wanted at the end of his life people would remember him as being a good guy and I, I and I was must have been about 21 or 22 at the time and I remember feeling shocked by that, by what that man said. So that this is these perceptions of what we want to be remembered as in our lives. I want to be remembered as what people will will want to be remembered as writers. They write novels or poetry or paint or uh, do things or try to get their names. Uh, become uh, have some kind of name for oneself so one can be remembered after we die as being someone who did something, achieved something, attained something. Our society very much encourages this, isn't it? Trying to, to make yourself special, to be somebody special. So these, this grasping of the perception of the other cells of being somebody, being a good guy or being a bad guy or whatever, this, this grasping very much conditions what we experience. We tend to seek out or be attracted to or inclined towards those very situations.
knows that suffering should be let go of, and knows that suffering is to let go of. And Arahant knows the cessation of suffering, and that cessation should be realized, and knows that cessation has been realized. And the Arahant knows the eightfold path, the way out of suffering, and knows that this path should be developed, and knows that this path has been developed. It is a 12 insight, insight knowledge of, of Alahanta. The four noble truths in their theatre, the 12 stages of Alahanta. So then, say, as we, as we use Nietzsche now for knowing and Panya wisdom, we are training for for influencing our consciousness, the consciousness of the ability to reflect Contemplate, reflect on the four noble truths, the eightfold path. We can understand and contemplate and reflect through being conscious. We are allowing things into consciousness that before we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, allow, like fear. You're letting fear be conscious rather than So with their fear, they're contemplating fear. With their anger, they're contemplating anger. Dhamma Upatana power is still going there. Oh, I should get angry. Because you get angry with me. Of the situation, 
to, to, uh, to, to know them, to know anger, anger is like this. And to, to uh, accept it, to take it, so it ceases. So what you're allowing is a cessation. And then, then that, that whole process doesn't arise again. You've actually allowed that which arises to cease. And that is the natural way, whatever arises ceases. This is the law of nature. It's not a person. It's, uh, it's as it is, whatever arises ceases. Where the with avicca bhajaya sankara, with the with the ignorance conditioning everything, then you're not letting anything cease. You're merely going around in the water sankara or the cycle. You keep you, whatever you whatever you you, you know you you with the with the dana ubadana power process, the desire grasping and becoming and rebirth, then you're you're always going into the next you're never letting anything go. You're always pushing aside or getting rid of, grasping or getting rid of things, picking and choosing. And that becomes what we call blind habit. Just the condition uh, the mind is just conditioned to react to things. So you're not letting things flow and move according to their nature, to the way they really are, the way things are. You, you're, you're, you're imposing onto to the way things are something else, so the sankara, avicca, bhajaya sankara. So there's always this imposition, this additive, this, this something extra that interferes and intends to blind and prevent us from seeing things as they are. So we tend to suffer by all the things we create and complicate and add to the way things are. Now just notice in, as you're sitting here, if you're really with the way it is, there's no suffering. Even if you're in pain, you, you're, you can accept the pain. Um, you can if you're really totally accepting and mindful, fully conscious and mindful using wisdom, then there's no suffering. You're not making anything, adding anything on to this moment. It's just as it is. It's such a the tatada, the as isness. Now contemplate this as is, just this way. It's like this. And then, like, say, looking at the Buddha Rupa and the shrine, directly across by consciousness. There's consciousness there. I can reflect on the fact that that's I consciousness. And reflection means that I'm actually uh, acknowledging this. It doesn't have to be called anything, but just for, you don't have to call it eye consciousness, in fact, but it's just a reflection. It's not a, it's not a grasping of some idea. It's a noticing. And if I'm just with that alone, consciousness isn't suffering, is it? 
but it, if I start grasping the uh, at it with wanting, you know, wanting to, you know, starting looking at what's wrong. If I don't like this, don't like that. Then, then I, uh, then I start suffering. But if I'm just with it as it is and, and mindful, then I'm adding nothing to it. It's as it is, and one can can, can abide in that in that emptiness where things are as they are and one is no longer following the tendency have a to add something wrong. to react to it now before I don't remember ever really being able to do this It's important to remember that the Buddhist teaching and the practice is psychological. It's not uh, talking about the creation of the world as a kind of, uh, as the original creation story or the, this, this kind of approach is, is, was deliberately avoided by the Buddha. We're not talking about Adam and Eve or the, when the world began as, as a history or as myth. So when we talk about the end of the world, we're not talking about the destruction of the planet Earth. It's the psychological end of the world that we create out of ignorance. So when we when Buddhists talk about ending the world, it sounds to the to the uh, Western mind like we're annihilationists. We're out to destroy the world or just get out of it, and uh, because we we think it's bad, and uh, we're just trying to get away from it, destroy the world, or let the world cease so that there's nothing left, because. Our minds very much are dualistically conditioned and our, our values are very much based on materialistic values, materialistic science and the respect for history, facts and statistics. So that our tendency to interpret these, uh, say that oftentimes the Buddhist teachings come out in a rather uh, unpleasant form in, in the Western world because uh, we can be accused of being annihilationists. What about eternal life and love and, and uh, the wonder and the beauty of the universe? Is it all just, you know, with the flowers, they just came out of ignorance and they're, and, uh, they're somehow to be despised for that? Are they just there to, to tempt us, to want us to desire them, and insidious <laughs> enemies sitting there on the shrine? So I'll give them a second glance and, and lose my mindfulness for a minute and get filled with desire to possess them. Is that what the flowers are for? And the sunset and the trees and the, the beauties and the wonder of 
universal, sy universal system that we can witness to and observe in these, in these forms, in these human bodies. Is it evil and wicked and we've just got to fight against it and not notice it and deny it and reject it, suppress it? Is that what the end of the world is? Well, to, to life-affirming people, then Buddhism does sound like the Buddhist monk is uh, the discipline and the, all that is just so that the Buddhist monk will not be tempted. There's so many temptations on the sensual realm that you just keep your eyes down, don't look at a woman, whatever you do. Don't enjoy your meal, whatever you do. Just eat and say, chewing, chewing, gulp, gulp. <laughs> And if you, you happen to enjoy for one brief moment a, a taste of uh, a sweet cake or something, then you, you, you have to feel guilty about it. You, you're going to probably get reborn in the next life as some kind of creature uh, just with an uncontrollable de desire for sweet cakes. Or a sexual desire, is that something really terrible and we've just got to, to really fight it? It's such a, a kind of dominant uh, energy in the human realm that we've just got to hold it back at all costs. Fight it, resist it, suppress it, conquer it. And this is very much from the Western attitude, isn't it, of conquering nature. I mean, we, you don't hear uh, in Asian societies talking in such aggressive and grandiose ways, do you? I mean, it, I don't think uh, in China or in India or countries, uh, Asia or in Thailand, these countries would even think in those terms of that I'm going, that we're going to conquer nature. And yet, in the Western world, we we can talk very much in a very confident way that we've conquered nature. Of course, that hurricane in October was, was a big slap in the face of the British, wasn't it? It was like a real spanking, wasn't it? All those protected trees with preservation orders on them were just blown over. Mother Nature wins again, doesn't it? We didn't win that one. The Americans conquered the moon, didn't they? They went up there and they conquered it. Stuck a little flag on it. <laughs> Big deal. <isn't> it? <laughs> That's called conquering the moon. Now the psychology of Buddhism is the world is the world that we that we're uh, letting see the cessation of the world is the world that comes from avicca bhajaya sankara. That's uh, avicca, not knowing the truth. We create sankaras out of ignorance, <coughs> and and these are our prejudices, biases, views and opinions that come out of an unawakened un, uh, and lack of wisdom, unawakened mind, lack of wisdom. I mean, we can, we can create a whole world that is 
I mean, societies do this. It is based on all kinds of false views, fears, and prejudices. I mean, every civilization, every culture, every tribal group has their own prejudices and, and biases, don't they? Like, tribal people, um, they, they, some, they, some, they have a respect for the natural laws oftentimes, but on the human plane, they can be quite uh, uncompassionate, eating the tribe next to them. No, that wasn't uncommon at one time, and it cannibalism. Wasn't you didn't eat your own tribe ever, that was forbidden, but the next tribe you could eat. <laughs> well now we, 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 we think, well what a horrible thing to do. But yet if you were brought up with that avicha with from that avicha position, then the sankaras would be you you when you saw the people from the next tribe you'd start When you read about uh, the, the beginnings of civilization in, in the in Sumer the, um, the, and the the way that kings were originally for sacrifice to God, I mean, you, the kings were originally to be sacrificed physically, uh, and could, uh, probably even a, a bit of cannibalism involved. So you can see where the Holy Communion of the Catholic Church came from. <laughs> That's what they do, isn't it? In every Sunday or every day, in fact, Catholic churches, they eat the king. The eat his blood, eat his flesh, drink his blood. We was, I was brought up in the High Anglican Church, and we believe that. And you're actually eating the flesh of of Jesus and drinking his blood. <coughs> and it's it transubstantiated in, in a certain point in the Mass, a priest, an ordained priest, has somehow the power to change what is ordinary bread and, and wine into the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ, which you eat. Isn't that true in the Roman Catholic Church? Just to go together. Well, in the high, ch high Anglican Church, <laughs> High Anglican Church, uh, we used to do believe the very same thing, <clears throat> and that can be traced back to the, the sacrificial cults in in the, the in the Mesopotamia and in Egypt. The Egyptian pharaohs originally were were that, or the for sacrifice, religious sacrifice. And then, obviously, one of them got wise to this, wasn't, and started changing it around a bit when they sacrificed somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and 
the and then the animals. And then finally, yeah, that was uh, eventually stopped. But still, there's animal sacrifices being done that in India, in Nepal, in that the Shivite festivals where they where they uh, slaughter the goats by the thousands. So we can see that Abhijja Bhajaya Sankara, that's the way the world is. The world view is that, that you appease the, this powerful universe that's around you by giving something you love and respect back to it, isn't it? That's what religious sacrifices are for. They're not just uh, callous, uh, uh, brutal uh, things done out of, out of a kind of reptilian cold-heartedness, but it, they're actually to try to sacrifice something very dear, something you love, uh, to back to the god, or the god, or the goddess, in order to appease. Because we do find ourselves in this, in these rather delicate and, and vulnerable forms, bodies, in a universe which is tremendous power and mystery to it, doesn't it? It's it's so powerful. It's just the wind here, standing out on the field the other morning, just where the wind was the strongest. You felt this tremendous power in the universe, and you wondered. I wondered, where does this, where does all this power come from? This, this, this incredible wind blowing on me. And you can feel it, especially at night, on a clear, beautiful night out. The mystery of this, of the stars and the. The, the vast spaces. So human beings, we've, from the primitive uh, levels up to modern uh, civilized, modern civilization, is is this wonder at the mystery of it all. And religion, of course, is an attempt to try to to comprehend the mystery in some way, or to uh, not, uh, not to comprehend it, at least to, to accept the mystery of it. <coughs> because what is it all about? It is mind-boggling, isn't it? When you, when you look at the universe from the position of a human being on a planet, it is so beyond anything we can really understand in, in the limited conceptions, percepts that we have with our little brains and their, and their ability to, to form ideas and percepts. So what happens is that we tend to create a world that we get, that we, that we can live in and feel uh, some sense of safety or security within that little world, that little realm that we make up. And it can be a very m measly, poverty-stricken little world, can't it? They like, like I used to feel that from my background, the, the middle-class white, American middle-class white of the 1940s and 50s, to me was the most poverty-stricken, small-minded little world. It was so revolting to me that I'd do almost anything to get out of it. 
And yet my family, everybody wanted me to fit right into it. Into that, in the 1950s, white middle class world. Which people around me said is the real world. This is, you're, you're fortunate to be born into this middle class. You're fortunate to be white. And you're very fortunate to live in the, in the United States. The greatest country in the whole world. And, and you're, you're, you, you can do anything you want, you can, you can, and you get lots of money, you can make lots of money, you can get rich. They have all these stories about Andrew Carnegie and so forth, coming over from Scotland, broke without a penny in his pocket and becoming a millionaire. Mm -hmm. So the idea of becoming even president of the United States, becoming the top from, and all these advantages, this little world of, say, that, that my mind was conditioned with, say, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now, that somehow was a, to me, a, a world that I was quite glad to destroy. I mean, I had no, no desire to, to hold on or to try to keep that world alive. It didn't, it didn't appeal to me. It, it, I found it so mean, so wanting, so dreary, that to think of spending the rest of my life thinking like that and acting like that for the rest of my life was so painful that, that I thought anything would be better. Being an alcoholic, a drug addict, drug addict or suicide or anything would be better than that. And yet, so many people thought that was the, the way to be. Most of my, my friends from high school they had no, no inclination to get outside of it, but wanted to conform and fit right into it and get all the goodies that it promises, that it promised at that time. And what surprised me, how few human beings really long to know the truth, really are willing to, to put forth some effort and risk in their lives to find out. Because you are, you're, it is a risk, isn't it? You might fail, you might, you might really go off the track, get lost. Going into the unknown, in the uncertain, and into the mystery, because this is this is not a course charted with with maps and, and guarantees that of anything other than you that that if you are willing to sacrifice everything, then you'll find out the truth, whatever that might be. Maybe it's not worth finding out. Maybe it's better to build a nice little world of Icha Bhajaya Sankara of of a cozy little cottage in <coughs> a coterie of beloved friends. And uh, we used to have these, I used to call them the New Hampshire uh, fantasies. New Hampshire, is a, to me, was a place in, in the United States where you'd like to go to get away from everything, like Devon here. 
and you, you know, it's, it's the, the ideal kind of New Hampshire fantasy world where you, you, you have the, the ideal wife and children, you know, uh, a wife who's a good cook. That's important. When I was married, my wife was a horrible cook. <laughs> I thought, never would I marry a woman who couldn't cook, ever. And the, <laughs> and, and the idea of having this, this uh, organic food farm, organic grown vegetables, health food, and, and you, these children would be rosy-cheeked and healthy and happy and they'd say daddy and mommy and they'd be polite <laughs> like English children do, not like Americans. And you live <coughs> on organic carrots and, and live happily ever after. <laughs> Ideal. This is a thinking of all, say, the, the worldly life, say, uh, the, the, the good things of life that you can kind of fantasize about, where you put them all together and you get this idealistic picture of, uh, of a, a kind of uh, paradise. Because you, 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 your children would never, you know, they would never have a mongoloid or a retarded child or uh, they, they, all your children would be intelligent, bright, beautiful, healthy, or the, the perfect children, the wife, the perfect wife and the, the playing beautiful country scene and uh, living happily. And that's a, a fantasy of of uh, that one might think, wouldn't it be nice if, if life could be like that? But then you're, you're always afraid that it wouldn't wouldn't go like that. Things can go wrong, and and uh, you can have moles in your gardens, and your carrots get eaten up by the rabbits, and your wife runs away with the milkman. or with a gambler from Mississippi. <laughs> so you can fantasize about all the possible, possible things that can go wrong, too. <clears throat> so this world is, uh, is the, the world that we create, isn't it? It's, we can create a fantasy, uh, an idealistic world, where everything, everybody's happy, everybody's smiling, everybody, everything is wonderful. And then then we can create a world where everything goes wrong. Everything falls apart. Everything you love disappears or dies or decays or disintegrates. And you're left alone, hungry and old, unwanted, unloved, out in the cold. <clears throat> Investigation of the world, then is 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 not a judgment. We're not we're not judging and and uh, condemning anything in it. Even the even the negative side, we're not judging as bad, as absolutely bad. We're just noticing how things are. So that we when we look at suffering, when we when we begin to open ourselves to dukkha, 
then we begin to see the way to not create these false worlds, these imaginary worlds, these conditioned worlds. We let them cease. They cease. The world ceases. The world ends. Now what happens when your world ends? And so this is where you, the psych, the psych, when I point to the fact of the psychological approach of Buddhism, it's talking about the mind. When, when you, when me and mine, I am, ends, what's left? When th- where thought ceases and, the, and all the attachments and the, and the views and prejudices and fears cease in your mind, what's left? And when you, when you realize the empty mind with its brightness, clarity, wisdom, knowledge, its light, it's an enlightened mind, it's, it's clear, there's intelligence. And there's no need to create an, a world out of avicca anymore when, the, when, you, when you reach the pure mind, the pure heart. There's no need to create these false realms and all these, these little worlds, these sankharas that we, that we produce out of avicca, not knowing anything about it, not having looked at anything, just being conditioned by the culture we, we happen to be born in, by the family, by the class, in all of this, and we never, if we never question, look at it, examine it, then we tend to believe, and the whole rest of our life is just variations on that same old theme of Icha, Bhajaya, Sankara, Sankara, Bhajaya, Vinyanang, and onward, in a cycle. This goes around and around. So when it gets to uh, Jati Jaramara Nang Soka Pariteva Tukatomanasa Upayasa then you seek rebirth again in the same world. You try to, to find uh, to get reborn into that little world that you think is safe, that you that you want to be real, that you call the real world. So that so much of the human uh, suffering is involved in this continuous seeking of rebirth and in, in, in these false worlds wanting the same support and when look how people get very threatened when their little worlds these narrow little worlds are threatened we can we can react the nicest people the most civilized decent kind of citizens of of britain or america can become downright monsters when their world is being threatened by somebody else Kill them! Get rid of them! They're going to destroy our world. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a, in a, um, a play, a uh, suburb in Seattle, which was all white, middle class, uh, respectable type of white people, Protestants, I think there were a few kind of Roman Catholics were highly questionable <laughs> in those days. That was before Kennedy. Mm. A lot of Jewish people, though, middle-class Jewish people, 
and it was uh, and it was all very safe up to uh, say on, on that level if, if it was there was uh, any any attempt by a, any other race uh, either black or oriental to move into it was the kind of was stopped I mean, you hear rumors about a Filipino family trying to buy a house and suddenly you know and somehow indignation would arise and prevent it and to get them make it impossible for them to buy the house you didn't want you let Filipinos in your neighborhood you don't know what was going to happen this idea of, uh, of keeping it very safe and the and the and the and these people were all quite you know religious civilized well-off well-educated middle-class white people they weren't barbarians but they could be barbarians when the security and safety of their narrow-minded little world was threatened even though it wasn't really being threatened actually it was they thought it was if something different would come into it and they might it might not be so good something strange something alien something foreign something that didn't fit into the very rigid patterns that you were used to and that you depended on for security so when black people started moving in in the 50s that was then the, then the white people started moving out they couldn't stop they couldn't stop it anymore and people were really being very nasty about it because they, they didn't want because black people represented the unknown the alien what you weren't sure they weren't how what they would do what their habits would be what they might what might happen so good Christians could become real monsters narrow-minded unkind cruel uh, monsters just because their 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 world that they they depended on was being threatened when it really wasn't There's nothing wrong eventually people that did stand they would found that it it was all right it wasn't that any 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 really any that that much different because <coughs> the black people that were moving in were all middle-class black people trying to be like middle-class white people <laughs> Oh, what a relief. <laughs> but I remember contemplating this and wondering why, why does it, why do people act like this? When they, when uh, being a religious person, even then, when I was a teenager, I was a very devout Christian, actually, <clears throat> I couldn't understand how people could, who were supposed to be following uh, the Christian teaching, could um, act like that I really couldn't couldn't understand it and so one tended to think it was because one tended to blame Christianity that it wasn't really uh, you know it was uh, people just said they believed it but it really was nobody really believed it because when it came to actually being Christian people weren't 
they were anything but. I can imagine Jesus Christ selling his house because a black man moved in there. Well, we experienced that uh, in the Chitters, didn't we? The Mrs. Mallory and the, that crew of people. They, it's, it's a common human pattern, isn't it? We can even see those tendencies in ourselves when we become very attached to a way of doing something or a particular style. Or in monasticism, you can become you can become very much like that. We've got, if anything threatens it or uh, changes it in any way, we can become very uh, frightened, panic-stricken, and react very badly. <coughs> We've got to keep the purity of our order. We must, we must protect ourselves at all costs. The purity of our tradition must be protected. We can't let anyone into this place if we feel they're threatening the purity of our tradition. We've got to, we've got to do kind of checks on them. Make sure that they, they, they're acceptable to it. We could become a real snobbish uh, cult. But that's creating a, a, a that's that's a vicha bhajaya sankha, isn't it? A monastic cult. Uh, with with ideas that we've got that we are here to protect it. And we've got to, to uh, make sure that we, we defend it at all costs. But the Buddhist teaching was one where that the, these conventions that we use are conventions alone. It, Buddha made it very, very clear in, I mean, of any religion that exists. I can't imagine how it could be more clear than the Buddhist teaching of conventional reality and ultimate truth, the Paramatta Satya, or ultimate reality, and the uh, Samuti Satya, the conventional reality. <coughs> so you're not just saying the conventional reality is an illusion, you're saying it's real on a as a convention. Conventions are like this. These are conventions. They're, they're all, uh, the learning how to use conventions is not Avicca Bhajaya Sankara. Using conventions with wisdom, mindfulness, is not avicca bhajaya sankhara. But clinging to conventions as if they were ultimately real is the avicca bhajaya sankhara. Clinging to the conditions and the conventions as if they were ultimately real, the real world. And that is that starts the, that is the, the process going to uh, from avicca to sokapariteva tukatomanasa upayasa and then rebirth again seeking seeking to get reborn again into into a safe little niche into a world you can depend on that has to be affirmed and protected and defended or notice as you're exploring your mind more and more, you're opening to the mystery, <coughs> to the 
totality to the unknown. That's why <coughs> I've been trying to suggest that these are the very signs you must open yourself to, to fear. You must open yourself to fear and terror and the dark and the mystery and the wonder and the unknown and the uh, feeling of being alone, the fear of being alone, rejected and lost in the dark, the black hole, in the cold, in a, a, a helpless, uh, vulnerable human in a vast, mysterious universe that's very powerful and very mysterious. And in these rather delicate little forms, we, we open ourselves to the whole of it. And that is what, when we begin to let go of these desires for security, for safety, for, for stability, for all, the, all forms of desire, letting go, letting everything go, letting the world cease, the cessation of the world, the world ends. Now if you're really attached to the view that you are this delicate body, and that you've got to protect it because uh, it's you, then of course you are going to be frightened by all of this. The idea of being alone and the dark and, the, and to look out. I remember looking out in the night skies and you know, sometimes feeling just totally kind of frustrated by it because it seemed so mysterious and, and, and I couldn't figure it out. What was it all about? What is it all about anyway, being born like this in these, in, where you have to feel pain for a lifetime? You know, there's so much pain, physical pain, in, from the day you're born, from the moment you're born, to the time you die. There's always discomfort, pain, and hunger, thirst. It's part of our human experience, isn't it? Why? Why do we get born like this? Just to experience pain, hunger, thirst, old age, sickness, death. Is it a, is it a, a cosmic bad joke? Was God just trying to be funny? They ha ha. <laughs> Joke's on you. You got born again in <coughs> so when anybody says you can have you can you can you can eat any of the fruit on these trees here all of them are yours except that one there that apple tree there you can't you can't eat those apples but all the rest are yours and then, of course, the only tree you can ever think of is the one. <laughs> and so God says, ha-ha, the joke's on you.
is there any way, more way of, uh, uh, more in, to point and say, point something as being important that we, that we can't help, we can't stop thinking about it by saying you can't have it. It's human nature, isn't it? The forbidden fruit is always the most tantalizing. <coughs> the fruit that's allowable. <laughs> <laughs> Until you understand the mind, isn't it? When you really look and investigate and see how your mind works, then it doesn't matter anymore with something forbidden or, or you're quite willing to let it be forbidden. You know that apples on the forbidden tree no doubt are just the same as the ones on the allowable trees. There's not much difference, is there, between, I mean, how, how different can an apple get? If you really explored and looked at the limitations of sensory experience and the conventional world and the sensory realm, it loses its, its fascination, doesn't it? You're no longer expecting it to, to provide uh, some kind of wonderful, new, exciting experience that you haven't had yet. I remember uh, when I was young, I used to look at, I always wondered, what was on the other side of the hill? And I'd see like the, the hill, the crest of the hill. I wonder what's on the other side of the hill. I was curious. Because where I am on this side of the hill, and then the mind sees that there's, there's a hill, and on the other side, where you can't see, there's something over there. I wonder what's over there. And so, <coughs> you see a winding path. And wonder what's on that path. Oh, it, it winds, it curves, goes off there, yeah, you can't see it. I can see around here, but I can't see over there. I, I want to go on this path, find out where, where it takes you. It might be some new, exciting experience, something I haven't experienced or seen yet, something new and wonderful. Discovery. Discovery of life. And this is, say, at a certain age, uh, appropriate kind of uh, curiosity. But now when I see the crest of the hill, I know what's on the other side. I don't have to go and look. Or what's on the, around, the, around the curve on the path. And so the, the curiosity of having to go and look and find out and taste the forbidden fruit and, and try to solve all the mysteries, that falls away as you begin to understand the mind. But then what is left is an openness to the total mystery. It's no longer me trying to, to find out the truth. But there is a, a feeling of, of relinquishment, of sacrifice of self-views, self-involvement, and the willingness to open oneself humbly, to be very humble, and to, to with, with, with faith and trust to the unknown and the mysterious, without asking it for, without looking for, to see what it, not, not trying to find out what it's all about, because you know the only thing you, we can do with it in the position we're in is open to it. That, that's, that's, that's the lesson we must learn as human beings. 
to humbly accept the position, the limitations we find ourselves under within these bodies and the mentality we have. Accept that, humbly accept that with gratitude and open it toward the unknown, to the mysterious, to the mystery. For fear, we're cowardly, we run away seeking rebirth in a cozy little scene or the old, the old thing, the old habit, the old friends. Take me back to the good old days. Wish I could, wish I could go back to the good old days. The times where everything was, was certain and you could the social stability. You didn't have all these foreigners around, all these Americans. <coughs> you know, what, you know, bringing into Britain all these, these newfangled ideas from America and then all these foreigners coming to live here and you don't, can't trust, you don't know who's going to do what. Let's go back to the good old days. With a kind of conservative attitude. Or let's try to make this society into, into something we like, we want. Let's have a revolution. I, I don't like it the way it is. I want it to be like the way I want it to be. Let's have a revolution. And, and then we'll, we'll get all the power, and then we can force everything to be like I want it to be. There's another extreme. Most people just settle for just getting through with kind of mesmerizing themselves with telly and <coughs> just getting on till they die in some kind of mediocre way. And the religious person say, and the religious seeker, the seeker, is, is willing to pay the price, take the risks, make the sacrifice. This is very much what I appreciate with all of you, is that you're obviously willing to do that. So when we talk about rebirth, I'm not talking about when, when this body dies, what I might get reborn as. I'm talking about the mental, the psychological process of avicca bhajaya sangha, of going back to hang on to something, to get reborn, absorb into some old thing, into something that I attach to or like or want, or want to hold on to. So I just Every time I, you know, just, when, when one is frightened, what do you do when you're frightened? What do, what do you tend to seek? What do you run to when you're frightened or anxious? Notice that. That's what you'll be reborn into. <laughs> Some people eat, don't they? So we have, we have restrictions on eating. People just eat, 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 eat when they get anxious. Probably be reborn as pigs in the next life. 
some people, when we're, we're, we're upset or frightened by anything, we, what, we look for, turn on the light, switch on the light, or, or read a book, or do something, you know, to, to get away from it. Find security and safety in the known, in, in something we know. Something we can, we can absorb into quickly, get reborn into very quickly, because fear is such a threat to us. In meditation, then, fear is not to be run away, not to run away, but to examine it. And to examine fear means you have to accept it as it is. You can't make fear, I'm only examine you if you change yourself into something I'm not frightened of. <laughs> you have to accept it with all its, its ferocious appearance and threatening qualities. Embrace it like a, a beast. Embracing the beast. in order to really look and know it for what it is. So, so in the, in the, here in, the, in this retreat, we, we have security, yes, don't we? we? The thing is going very well, and, and uh, even the weather's been extraordinarily pleasant for January. But no matter what happens for the rest of this retreat, if, it, if we have a Siberian freeze, another hurricane, whatever, bandits raid the place, the communists attack, or we just have a pleasant, very pleasant uh, time for two months, it's still, we're, we're, we're accepting all of it, we're learning from all of it. During this retreat, I'm trying to make it as pleasant as possible for I don't, I think it's working. I like so far what's happening because you don't have that kind of tense uh, uh, look that you usually have on these retreats. So my, my intention is to make it as pleasant and as um, pleasant an experience as possible. <clears throat> Not to make it easy and, and, and so that, uh, and, and just for the sake of ease, but to, to try to open yourself to investigation when you're not feeling that you have to get somewhere or do something or, or prove something or become something. And that's what happens a lot of times. You feel you've got to get there and prove to Ajahn Sumedho that you can do this. And you're going to, going to make, you've made your aditana at the beginning and you're going to keep it. And if you fall over, you know, you get, a lot, a lot of people get sick and you know, just can't keep up, can they? There's so much striving to become, which is, some, which is, 
I even encourage sometimes in our retreats, just kind of sock it to them, get in there and fight. And this, uh, trying this approach, because when, the, when one feels a sense of calm and ease, your reflective mind is really very sharp. You feel you're not, you're not, you're not fighting or resisting things, you're not trying to get anything, uh, but you're, you're, you feel calm and relaxed enough to contemplate Dhamma. And that's, that's very, that's, that's what I really want you to do, is to, is to take these Dhamma teachings and contemplate them, and apply them to your own experience, to the way things are, the way your mind is, what's happening to you, whatever way it is. So tonight is the, I thought we'd have the, a practice till midnight, it's the half moon, the last quarter moon phase, and uh, so that uh, you're all invited to practice with me till midnight. And then who knows what will happen, whether Midnight. Well, I think we all know what happens at midnight. <laughs>